Yosef HaTzadik has revealed himself to his brothers. And now the brothers are charged with the mission of going down and telling Yaakov Avinu that Yosef is still alive. And they told Yaakov Avinu, Yosef is still alive. And he's become a leader in all of Eretz Mitzrayim. Vayafa Glibo. But his heart rejected what they were saying to him. Kilohem in Lahem. He didn't believe them. He didn't believe them. Vidabru Elov, as Koldivre Yosef Asher Dibar Alehem. And then they told him all of the things that Yosef said to say. Vayar es Ha'agalos. And he sees the wagons. One more time. Vayar. It's okay. Vayar is Galos, and he sees the wagons that Yosef Hatzadik sent, Ashashalach Yosef, that Yosef sent, La Seisoso, Vatchiruach Yaakov Avihem. So Yosef, he sees the wagons that Yosef had sent to bring them to Mitzrayim, and all of a sudden, Yaakov Avinu was revived. The spirit of Yaakov Avinu comes alive. There's an obvious question here, the Medrash asks this question, and you all know the answer. We can understand. <laughs> We can understand when Yosef HaTzadik sends words to Yaakov, that Yaakov hears them and he's revived by that. But what was it about seeing the Agalot? What was it about seeing the wagons? Everyone knows the Medrash. We're going to say it out anyway. Everyone knows the Medrash of there was something deeper going on. What was going on? Yosef HaTzadik sent a hidden message. A hidden message to Yaakov Avinu. When Yaakov Avinu sent Yosef 
all those years prior, over 20 years prior, when he sent him to go search out his brothers, they were in the middle of learning a particular sugya. The sugya was the sugya of the Egla Arufa. What is the sugya of the Egla Arufa? We're going to discuss in a minute. But the message was as follows. Again, the, at the first glance, the message was as follows. Tati, 22 years ago when we left each other, we were learning this sugya. 22 years later, what's my message to you? How do you know that authentically I am still alive? I'm sending you the agalot, I'm sending you the wagons, as a reference to the Egla Arufa. But there's some problems here. Again, before we get into the depth, there's some obvious problems. That seems to be a pretty tenuous connection. Egla Arufa, was a, Egla means a calf, right? Agalot is a wagon. What does one have to do with the other? That's, that's like a really, like, does, it sounds like a bit of a reach, no? Egla Arufa, it's just like we were learning Egla Arufa, I sent you Agalot. He sees the wagons, and what does he think to himself? Ah, Agalot, Egla Arufa. Why? <laughs> That, that sounds like a little far-fetched. But more than that, what was it about the sugya of the Egla Arufa that's a message back to his father? And furthermore, what was the message of the Egla Arufa that Yosef HaTzadik was sent away on that sugya? In other words, there's something about Egla Arufa that it has a certain message that Yaakov sent Yosef and that Yosef is now sending back to Yaakov. Yaakov sends Yosef, what does that mean? Yaakov saying to Yosef, go search out for your brothers. What's the last thing we should learn? Egla Arufa. Okay. Yosef is now saying to his father, I'm still alive. What's the proof? Egla Arufa. What's going on in the sugya of Egla Arufa that there's some sort of hidden communication here between Yosef HaTzadik and Yaakov Avinu? Obvious questions. Now let's look at what actually happens in the Egla Arufa. Again, it's not going to make it any clearer, but I want you girls to get the basic information. Okay. The Pasuk says as follows. Let's say you find a dead body in a field, okay? And it's not known who murdered this person. But clearly, dead body in the field, person has been murdered. We don't know who murdered this person. So there's a very interesting prescription that the Torah gives us. The prescription is as follows. The first thing we need to do is we need to measure, if this person is between two cities, we need to measure which city the dead body is closer to. Okay? How do they do that? So five members of the Sanhedrin, girls, you understand what this means? The Sanhedrin. These are the biggest tzaddikim, the best dayanim that we have in Kala Yisrael. They have to leave the Sanhedrin in Yushalayim to travel to whichever city this is between. Right? And they themselves, the members of the Sanhedrin, have to measure which, which city the body is closest to. Right away, that should pique your interest. This is such an important thing that we need to bring the Sanhedrin to measure. We can't just have the regular Bezdin that sits in that city, the local Rav. No. Sanhedrin itself needs to be represented to go see which city the, which, which city the body is closest to. Okay. Now they find out, okay, let's say it was closer to city A. Okay? So now what do they do? The elders of the city, they go out and they have to shecht this egel as a carbon, and they have to basically say, this is an atonement for the fact that you died. Why? Because they would say, 
our hands, I'm quoting from the Pasuk now, our hands have not spilled this blood and our eyes have not witnessed it. And then the Kohanim would say, forgive your people, do not allow the guilt for innocent blood to remain with your people Israel. Why? As follows. There's many reasons for the Egla Arufa. I'm going to speak about two of them. The first reason, the common reason that's given, is because the Egla Arufa was basically letting everybody know that somebody just died. And this was a way, a very functional way, of making like a big deal. The elders of the city came out, the Kohanim came out. Now everybody was on the lookout for what? Everybody was on the lookout for the murderer. So it was a very easy way of heightening awareness. But there's a problem with this. What's the problem with this answer? No, we're assuming that it was a case of someone was murdered. Okay. Okay, that's an interesting. That that's like a you got to really be like a thoughtful like halachic murderer. Let's see where we can get it closer to. Only a small sip for a small laugh. <laughs> Girls, this is an obvious problem here. Why do I need Sanhedrin for that? Yeah, you want to make a big deal? Put posters up. What are we talking about here? There's a second reason that's given. Second reason is a little bit more interesting. Not that the first reason isn't true, but the second reason piques our interest a little bit more. Second reason is as follows. I'm just going to hit. In a certain way, Chazal say, a person is murdered in a field, we might be a little responsible for it. Why? Because had we sent him off properly, again, we're going to discover the depth of what this means, had we sent him off properly, perhaps he would not have been murdered. <coughs> the fact that he didn't leave with the confidence that we were coming with him, in a certain way that led to his murder. We're going to discuss what that means. In order to explain this, I want to tell you a story. This is not my story. The story is from Rabbi Krohn. But when I read this story for the first time, which already goes back probably over 20 years ago, this story, Mamish, moved me to my core. And I would ask all of you just for a second, especially for those that may be engaged in technology, maybe just to put away the technology for a couple of minutes because A, I'm not blind, and B, just be real, right? And uh, it's worth hearing the story. There's a young boy in class, and he never raises his hand. It's a true story. He never raises his hand. You know that kid that sits in the back and he's quiet, and he doesn't say much, doesn't speak to many friends, Pretty quiet kid. Kid had a hard life. It's a true story. Kid had a hard life. His father left. His father left. Divorced his mother, left. He has nothing to do with the family. Here's a little kid that's growing up in such a home. He never raises his hand. The Rebbe comes to this week's Parsha the Rebbe is teaching this week's Parsha, and the Rebbe asks a very famous question. What's the question? 
The question is, why does Yosef say, Ani Yosef ha'od avichai, I am Yosef, is my father still alive? He obviously knew his father was still alive. How did he know? Because how many times throughout the story do the Shvatim reference Yaakov Avinu? Yosef knew that, they were, that his father was alive. So what was the real question? That was the question that the Rebbe asked. I think it was like third or fourth grade. That was the question that the Rebbe asked his class on that day. And this kid who sat in the back of the class, quiet kid who never spoke, he raises his hand. You know, if you're a Rebbe and you have a kid who never raises his hand and then the kid raises his hand, what do you do? You got to call on that kid, right? So it didn't matter if there was going to be better answers and it didn't matter if the smartest kid in the class was going to contribute, you know, the briskorov's terrets to this question. If that kid raises his hand, you got to call on that kid. So right away the Rebbe goes, yeah? So the kid said, and listen to the words that he said, maybe he was asking, not is my father still alive? Of course my father's still alive. Maybe he was asking, does my father still think about me? Is he still alive in the sense of like, is our life deeply connected with each other? Because, you know, after 22 years of not seeing each other, I know my father is alive. You told me he's alive. But do I still matter to him? Sometimes when you're a Rebbe in that situation and you know what's really going on behind the scenes, you know that what was this kid really saying? He wasn't just speaking about an answer in Chumash. He was speaking about himself. He was saying, Ani Yosef, I am Yosef, but my father has left me. It's such an exceptionally profound answer to this question. Because at the core of the answer is a very basic pain. And it's a pain that every one of us on some level experiences throughout our life. Ani Yosef ha'od avichai. I am Yosef, but is my father still alive? Am I still connected to Hashem? I want to give you the reasons why we ask this question. Reason number one. I'm in exceptional pain. Tragedy surrounds my life. I am Yosef, and I am sent away to Mitzrayim. The suffering is exceptional. How could it be that my father is still alive? Where is HaKadosh Baruch Hu in my life when there's exceptional suffering? I'll tell you a true story. I'm going to change small details, but insignificant details, but just to protect this person's identity. Young man comes from a very poor family. Exceptionally poor. And we're talking about davening. And the kid says to me, Rebbe, I have a hard time davening because as much as I keep saying thank you to Hashem, I don't feel like I'm getting a you're welcome. I don't feel like I'm getting a response that says I really appreciate the fact that you're thankful for what I've given you. What's he really saying? He's not talking about davening. Could you imagine how obtuse a Rebbe would have to be to start talking to him about the philosophy of davening? How could you talk to somebody about the philosophy of davening if they're telling you I'm in pain? You have to be smart enough to know the words that are really coming out of their mouth. Are we talking about davening? 
No, we're talking about the fact that his family is mamish suffering and he feels so disconnected from God that it's hard to talk to him. That's not a, it's not a musr shmuz in davening. It's nothing to do with davening. Many, many years ago, a young man got up at a panel, a bunch of rebbeim sitting in the front, and he asked, is it okay to be angry at God? And all the panelists started giving these hashkafic answers. Is it okay? Is it not okay to be angry at God? I didn't answer. Afterwards, I went over to him and I said to him, so why are you angry at God? And he told me my grandmother died, who I was exceptionally close with. And honestly, I miss her so much. It's not a hashkafa. It's not a hashkafa. To sit there and talk with people about hashkafa when they're in pain is the most ridiculously stupid thing you could do. That's why people make such terrible mistakes when they go to shiva houses and they say things like, he's in a better place now, she's in a better place now. This was all meant to be. Shh. Don't say stupid things. Don't say stupid things in general. Don't say stupid things to people at shiva houses. How can you be so dumb? It's not a time for hashkafa. A person is in pain. Ani Yosef vichai. I am Yosef, experiencing some of the most terrible, horrific suffering I've ever experienced in my entire life. Could it be that my father really cares about me? That's the question. Question number one. Let's say it a little differently. It's not because I'm suffering. That's for some people. I'll give you a different one. Ani Yosef Aoda Vichai. Does my father still think about me? I feel so disconnected from him. Why? Because I consistently do things that I know don't make him proud. I consistently do things that I know. Not in the like, we're not talking about nuances. I know Hashem wants me to do this, and I'm choosing to do the opposite. Is he still interested in me? How many people have thought the following? Don't raise your hands. The answer is everybody on some level. Yeah? How many people have thought the following? If I was this obnoxious to a parent or to a sibling that I constantly and consistently did the thing they asked me not to do, what would our relationship look like? Right? If I, let's say I had to room with my brother, right? And my brother said to me, listen, do me a favor. Like, I got to get some sleep. I know you like to read at night, but just like use a flashlight or something. When you keep the big lamp on, it doesn't allow me to go to sleep. All right, well, I'm going to do that anyway. If you do that every single night, what's your relationship with your brother going to look like after 20 years? I'm not interested in being a part of your life. You hurt me. You clearly could care less about me. Why should I care about you? How many people have thought, the answer is everybody, so you don't have to raise your hand. How many people have thought, how could God really care about me after all that I've done? Look, at how, look how far I've fallen. Look how many things I've done that are obnoxious. I'll give you one last one. And this, on some level, might be the most difficult one. Does anyone really care about me? Not because of my avarice, not because of my suffering. Does anyone really care? I'll tell you what it sounds like when you talk about it academically, and then we'll talk about it for real. This is what it sounds like when you talk about it academically. Does God care, and I don't know why it's almost always this example, does God really care if I'm not careful about borer on Shabbos? I don't know what it is about borer that it became the litmus test for every Jew who asks me this question, yeah? Does God care how I separate my food on Shabbos? What is that really, what is that really saying? 
What it's really, it's not about Borer. If, imagine, can you imagine how stupid it would be if somebody came to me and said, does God really care about Borer on Shabbos? And I started discussing with them the halacha of Borer. Why would that be so stupid? It's not about Borer. It's not about Borer. You girls, have you ever seen the video, It's Not About the Nail? Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. not about the nail. It's not about Borer. If you haven't seen It's Not About the Nail, I'm giving you a homework. After. You girls know what after means? After the shear. Not now. Not now. After the shear. Take out your phones that I'm sure are filtered up the wazoo. Yeah? And type it on YouTube, It's Not About the Nail. Trust me, it's worth two minutes of your life. Yeah? It's not about the nail. It's not about Borer. What are they really saying? Does any of this really matter? Does God really care if I do Borer on Shabbos? What is that really saying? Ani Yosef, ha'od Is there is there a life here? Is this a life? You see, if I do something for my kids, right? I know my kids care. How do I know? I get the feedback. What's the feedback? The feedback is, that was really good. Made a, we, made, we, made a, we, we made a... Um, a bas mitzvah. Last week, I made a bas mitzvah for my daughter. Oh. You girls were on Hanukkah break. It was a perfect time to do it. <laughs> do you know what it means to go the extra mile? See, in Eretz Yisrael, the way we do it here is my daughter's bas mitzvah is in my house. And um, we decorated the house. And we cooked all the food ourselves. And we invited you know, friends and family. And then there's like dancing, and there's like a video afterwards. And then there's dessert, and then there's cleanup. Now, I was in charge of buying the decorations. Why? Because I went to America, and I can go to Party City. And in Party City, it's like the, today in the five towns, they have a Party City, and it's like the Costco of Party City. This thing is like, it's like a Sam's Club. It's massive. So I went to the cashier, and I asked her, I said, do you have emoji stuff? Because the theme of the bas mitzvah was black and gold were the colors, but because my daughter is such a character, and this daughter is like really a character, so the dessert section all had like emoji stuff. So she said, sure, aisle six is emoji stuff. So I went to aisle six, which is like twice as long as Tomer Devora, yeah? And there's an every emoji thing you could possibly think of. So when I came back and I had gone the extra measure of buying a black and gold chandelier and black, like I, I bought everything. I must have spent, Bali Gozma, I must have spent two, three hundred dollars just on decorations. Now tell me, do we spend two, three hundred dollars on decorations because of the way, because of the way the house is going to look? No. Of course not. We spend it because of the look on my daughter's face when I opened up the suitcase and half the suitcase is decorations. What's the feeling? My father really cares about me, not because of two, three hundred dollars, but because look how much he got for me. And when we spend that day decorating the house and we're makbed that everything should look great. And by the way, decorations are still up. Why? Because every time she comes downstairs, the chinuch move, every time she comes downstairs, it's my bas mitzvah. And when you write your daughter's bas mitzvah speech with her, and you don't just hammer it out in five minutes, but you sit there with her and you work out all the jokes. She didn't have a sip of water, but she... <coughs> but we sat there and we worked out all the jokes. 
really ruined it for me. And we're sitting there and trying to craft, like, this daughter, again, she's wonderful, she's amazing, but she is a character to the max, and she, she, from the time she's little, from the time she's like in first grade, she's been fighting with kids that are older than her. She was the kid who in first grade, everybody in eighth grade knew. You know what I'm saying? Like, she was that kid. When my daughter was in eighth grade, and she was like in, I want to say, third or fourth grade, she started a fight against the entire eighth grade class because they were in their section for kickball or something, I don't know, machanayim, whatever like, games they had. And she came to my daughter who was in eighth grade and she's like, tell them they're doing the wrong thing. And my daughter's like, stop embarrassing me in front of my entire grade. You know what I'm saying? She's that kid. So when we, yeah, every, everybody likes Rachel. She's like, because she, she's the sugar. The, so when she thanked her sisters, she said, again, and we worked on the joke together. The joke was, thank you to you know, my sisters, Bracha Chana and Shira and Miriam and... I know that sometimes I bother you, but let's be honest, sometimes you bother me too. And you deserve everything I give you, right? So that was, her, that was her, the thank you she came up with. And we sat and we worked on it together. When she said it, so I was watching, when she said it, she wasn't just saying a line. It was just stam a line. It was the line we wrote. It was the line we wrote, right? So why do we go above and beyond for our kids? Why do we go above and beyond for the people we love? Because it's clear and obvious to us. It makes a difference, right? But what if it's not clear and obvious? What if every time I feel like I'm doing something for God, nothing happens? Not because I'm suffering, but because honestly, I just don't see the connection. Is my Judaism alive? How many girls, honestly, want to be able to daven with passion? But <laughs> daven with passion, I feel so disconnected. Not because I'm doing so many averas. I'm generally a good girl. But Lamaisa, we feel disconnected. It's so hard to connect to God. And wouldn't it be so much easier if we could just do whatever we wanted? Just now I got off the phone with a Talmud. And he said, this is his question. Just now, as I was walking in, this is his question. Does it really make a difference three hours or six hours? Does it really make a difference? I want to go three hours because honestly it's easier. Who wants to wait four or five hours? I'd rather go three. Isn't three an acceptable minute? So I asked him a question. I said, are you asking me a halachic question or are you asking me an emotional question? He said both. I said, let's talk about the emotion for a second. What's the emotional question? He goes, I know what I'm really asking. I'm lazy. I don't really care about this. I want to do the bare minimum. I said, right. If we feel disconnected, what do we want to do? We want to do the bare minimum. When we feel connected, what do we want to do? We want to do the maximum. So the question really, if you put all three of these together, what's really the question? If I'm suffering, if I've done so many Averas that there's no way God could love me, or honestly, if I just don't feel like any of this matters, the one word that ties all of this together is connection. If I'm suffering, I must not be connected because you did this to me. That's fair. If I've done so many Averas, I must not be connected. Could, who, who could possibly stand? Even an infinite God couldn't stand as obnoxious as I am. And last but not least, I just don't feel connected. Let's take this young man's response and let's now go back to Egla Arufa and I want you to see something unbelievable. You know what the halach of Egla Arufa says? Halach of Egla Arufa says a simple thing. You were leaving the city. You were leaving the city. What was the feeling you felt when you left? Did you feel protected? Did you feel cared for? Were we malava you out? When you left, 
Did we hug and say goodbye? Did we make sure that you had food and shelter for the road? Or did you leave as if you didn't matter? How many people go off the derech, not because they don't believe, but because nobody ever let them know that they mattered? How many people go off the derech because they never had a teacher, they never had a rebbe, maybe they never even had a friend that put their arm around their shoulder and said to them, you know, you're the most important person in the world to me right now. Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, I don't know if you've heard of him, he was the head of Project, I think he still is, the head of Project Yes. When he sits down with kids that are off the derech, he has a move. You know what his move is? His move is, he keeps his phone on, and when they walk into the room, he turns off his phone. He says to them, I'm turning off my phone. Why does he turn off his phone? Because the first thing that this kid needs to know is everything that you say has my undivided attention because you matter. He doesn't need to tell them you matter. He acts as if they matter. I've said this before. I've probably said it here, and I'll say it again. There's a famous story. I think everybody tells it in their version, right? But of the mother who's washing dishes and the kid who's trying to get their mother's attention so she could show her the book report that she got back. Mommy, mommy, look at my book report. Very nice, sweetie, very nice. And she continues washing the dishes. Mommy, mommy, look at my book report. I looked. Mommy, mommy, can you look with your eyes? Actually look. Put down the phone. Put down the phone. I want to, you, want, you know what the most obnoxious thing you could do is? The most obnoxious thing. When somebody's talking to you? Yeah, I'm listening. No, you're not. No, you're not. I can type and listen at the same time. Who cares that you can? Who cares that you can? Do you know how rude that is? Do you know how obnoxious that is? Just imagine if you were a kid trying to talk to somebody who's saying, yeah, I'm listening to you. No, you're not. You might be listening to me, but you're not listening to me. There's a fundamental difference. I know you can hear the words that I'm saying with your ears. How many people do this? How many people, like if they've ever been called out in class uh, and, and they were spacing out and the teacher says, okay, tell me the last thing I said. So they can, re, they can go back in their mind and somehow they can pull out the last seven seconds of what the teacher said. They don't actually know the sentence, but they're able to say like, there was a war in England, right? They can pull out that last, they can pull out that last thing. Why? Why can they pull that out? They're not paying attention. They just have the words and they're in... Paying attention to somebody doesn't mean hearing the words that they've said. It means letting them know that they matter. You know why this person was killed? This person was killed not because they weren't able to defend themselves. This is what the Pasuk is telling us. It's not because they didn't have a knife on them that they could have staved off their attacker. It's because they didn't believe in themselves to stave off their attacker. And you know why they didn't believe in themselves? Because whoever told them that they mattered? Why is it that... And again, I don't think I'm saying something crazy. But why is it that so many people feel, so many people feel that they're getting twice, three times, four times the amount of negativity thrown at them as they are positivity? The comments on our dress, the comments on our behavior, the comments on our classwork, the grades that we get. Where's the enthusiasm? Where's the positivity? Where's the, you're awesome, we're so happy to have you here. Here's a crazy line. I shouldn't say it, but I'm obviously going to say it anyway, yeah? Could you imagine what education would look like in the Orthodox world if we treated it like Kirov? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if when you showed up to shul or you showed up to, or you showed up to school, somebody said, we're just so happy to have you here? Instead of, ah, but you didn't do this. Instead, you didn't do that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't say those things. I feel absolutely comfortable, 100% comfortable. If somebody's doing something inappropriate in a shir of mine, 
I feel absolutely comfortable to call that person out. You know why I can't? Because I don't have enough trust in the bank with you girls. I don't know you. I come here once a week. I give a shear. I laugh. I take a sip of water. We move on, right? We don't know each other. So what happens if I call one of you out? It's over. It's over. You don't know me. And I don't know you. It's not nice. So I, the person might be doing something that's exceptionally disrespectful. I can't say a word. I don't have enough credit in the bank. I can't make a withdrawal if I haven't made a deposit. And I know, I'm smart enough to know that getting up here once a week and sharing with you Torah is not a deposit. You don't have to be here. You could leave. Maybe Reva will write you down. Maybe she won't. But that's not what it's about. This is not a deposit. A deposit is a personal relationship. When I have a personal relationship with somebody, I'm thrilled to say to them, you're doing the wrong thing. But if I don't have that personal relationship, how can I do that? The Egla Arufa was the following statement. The Sanhedrin needs to come for it. We made a terrible mistake. You were killed because we didn't tell you that you mattered. The Torah of today's generation is a Torah that must be, every single sense, you matter. Yes, people are suffering exceptionally. You know the message? If, if, listen, if they're getting hit on the head from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know the message that has to be from us as a community? You matter. Person dies, what do we have? Shiva, who comes? Everyone. And, and it's, again, Baruch Hashem, I've never had to sit Shiva. But my best friend has had to sit Shiva twice. I flew in from Israel for the last one. When you sit at Shiva for long enough, you hear the same thing over and over and over and over again. Tell me about... And you hear the same stories. I asked my friend, how can you tell the same story over and over again? He goes, you know why? Because people cared enough to come. When we suffer, we suffer as a community. It eases the burden because we tell people that they matter. When a person feels disconnected because of all the averas that they've done, what is the only message that every Rebbe, every teacher should be giving over in every single shear that they give? You are infinitely connected because you are a piece of God. Just like a son or a daughter cannot truly run away from a parent because no matter how far they run, they're essentially connected. That has to be the message of every single halacha, every single hashkafa, every single musr, every single shir you get. You have to walk away with the feeling that I am beloved by HaKadosh Baruch Hu infinitely. And if you leave a shir ever feeling worse about yourself, you should know that Torah is toxic. It's disgraceful Torah. It's Torah that can poison a person. You have to know that no matter how far you stray, you're deeply connected. It's our responsibility as a community to do that. And here's the last one. If somebody feels disconnected from their Judaism because they say, does God really care? The answer is not a hashkafa shmuz on borer. You know what the answer is? The message of the Egla Rufa. If you feel like you're distant, if you feel like you're far out, if you feel like it doesn't matter, you should know it matters. It matters. Why it matters to God, I have no idea. Why he cares how I separate the food like this, I have no idea. But I know it matters. And you have to know it matters. And the best way to teach you to know that it matters is you matter. Now let's go back and we're going to hear something unbelievable. If you capped what I'm saying until now, it's going to change your whole view of the story. Yaakov sends Yosef down to his brothers and he knows that the brothers hate him. And he knows that he's sending them out there, that it's going to be misubach, it's going to be complicated, it's going to be complex. What's really going to happen? He knows all of that. What's the message that he sends him off with? I know that you're about to go to a place of disconnection. I know that you're about to go to a place 
where it could be that Mitzrayim is awaiting for you. And you're going to fall so deep that you, Yosef HaTzadik, the paradigmatic Tzadik, might find yourself in the home of Aishas Potiphar. You might find yourself in the midst of that Aveira. You might find yourself in jail. You might find yourself as the viceroy of Egypt. And every woman is saying, I want to be with Yosef HaTzadik. You might find yourself in all of those places. You should know one thing. You're deeply connected. You matter. So Yosef HaTzadik's response then is unbelievable. What's his response to his father? His response to his father is twofold. But you've got to get the genius here. The genius was that he was saying to his father, I am still alive. How do you know I'm still alive? Because I'm only alive because you told me I matter. I'm only alive today. I'm only Yosef HaTzadik because the message that Yaakov Avinu told Yosef HaTzadik over and over again when he was a kid was you are the most important person in the world. Do you remember the feeling that you had in your heart the first time you felt like I don't matter? The first time someone important in your life really spoke in like a terrible way to you? Maybe it was a parent who was like so disappointed in you. Do you remember the feeling, the sinking feeling in your heart of like, oh my gosh, I'm so unworthy. You know that feeling? Yosef never had it from his father. Never once. How do you survive 22 years in an alien culture? How do you survive 22 years in an alien culture? If you had a father who raised you to know that you are the most important person in the world to him, you can survive. If not, it's fast. It goes so fast. Why do we have 13-year-old kids, 12-year-old kids that are going off the derech today? You think it's because they have big hashkafa questions? All of a sudden, a 12-year-old, you know, you remember what it was like to be 12? It wasn't that long ago. Remember what it was like to be 12? You were a big philosopher? I don't know if I believe in this. No. It's because nobody told you to believe in yourself. Nobody told you you mattered. That's why all these programs today, they're wonderful. You know why? Because the programs are basically designed to say, you matter. An old, an old uh, acquaintance of mine, a guy who I grew up with, he started a, a program called Our Place. You've heard of Our Place? Our Place is in Brooklyn. It basically takes kids off the streets. You know how he gets them to come in? He offers them hot food because they haven't had hot food in so long. Because they left their parents' house. They have nowhere to go. They don't know where the next meal is coming from. Just by offering them hot food, he gets them to come in. You know what the message is, though? We have food for you. Not we have, not we have food. We have food for you. You matter. That's how they rebuild lives. So the first thing that Yosef said to Yaakov is, I survived because you told me you mattered. And then Yaakov knew that it was real. But there's something deeper. If you look at the Pasuk carefully, I'm going to read it to you one more time. Something unbelievable. The symmetry is just stunning. But you've got to really hear it again. You've got to hear it with your heart. Because it's a beautiful one. What were these agalot? Remember we asked the question that these agalot, it seems like such a thin connection. Egel, agalot, wagon, a calf. What's the connection here? These were the agalot, asher shalach Yosef, that Yosef sent. Laset oto. What does Lasetoto mean? To bring Yaakov down to Mitzrayim. What was the message Yosef was sending to Yaakov? You also, you also, my father, I paved the way. I paved the way. What was the way? You told me I matter, so I was able to survive. But now Yosef is saying something back to his father. You matter too. You matter too. Sometimes we have the capability of giving a gift to our parents. Yaakov was about to go down to a gullus that he knew 
because it was from Brisbane Abbasarim. When Yaakov leaves, what does that mean? It means all of his children are going into Gullus for hundreds of years, right? The end of the parsha. that's already what's going on. Do you hear it, girls? Could you imagine the feeling that Yaakov Avinu has as he's walking down to Mitzrayim? He must have dreaded every single step. Why must he have dreaded every single step? Because he knew. He's imprisoning his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, his great-great-grandchildren are going to go through some of the most horrific suffering in the world. How could this happen? After all, what did Yaakov want? He wanted serenity. And instead, what is he getting? His children are about to go into Gullus Mitzrayim. So what's the message that Yosef HaTzadik says to him? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because the message you gave me, it was true. And now I'm giving it back to you. These agalot that are going to take you down to Mitzrayim, they have in them the Egla Arufa. They have in them the capacity. Don't ever forget, Yaakov. As you're coming down to Mitzrayim, you have the capacity to tell Klal Yisrael right now, we're going to get through this together. You know why? Because we matter. That was the, that was the sensitivity Girls, could you imagine, let's go back to that story. Could you imagine what it was like to be that kid whose father left? Can you imagine? <clears throat> What's the feeling? Is the feeling, I don't have a dad by Little League when everybody else does? When everybody else's father has a dad that's there cheering them on, I don't have a dad, is that the feeling? I don't think it's about the dad being by Little League. When it's, everybody else has a dad that they sit next to in shul and I have to sit with a friend's father. Is that what he wants? Someone to sit next to him in shul? I don't think so. Those are symptoms. You know what the root cause is? Somebody abandoned me. Somebody literally said, I don't matter. So he said, Ani Yosef Haodavichai. Chaval. Chaval to communicate anything else to the people that we love to the girl that's sitting next to you right now, to the girl that's in the dorm, the one that's suffering, chaval to communicate anything other than, you know, you matter infinitely. Because at some point, that musr of Ani Yosef, it's going to come around to us. When somebody looks at us and says, do I matter? It's going to be an indictment on us. Did we let them know? Were we proactive? Did we let them know that they mattered? Everyone talks about this year of growth. I have to focus inwards. Whatever that means. How could it be that growth could happen without us looking at the person next to, it, next to us and saying, this person may not know that they matter enough. They may not know. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to be an Egla Rufa for every single person.